0: The Energy Gang is brought to you by SunGrow, a leading provider of PV inverter solutions across the world. SunGrow is providing energy storage systems to some of the largest projects in the U.S., like the Chisholm Grid Project in Fort Worth, Texas. Chisholm Grid is a 100-megawatt standalone battery storage installation expected to start commercial operation in the middle of this year. To learn more about SunGrow's energy storage solutions, email them at info at sungrowamericas.com. The Energy Gang is brought to you by s and Electric. New technologies are unlocking innovative ways to solve power-related challenges. Some of them are wired, and some are non-wired. Non-wires alternatives like microgrids can provide more sustainable, resilient, and economic ways to deliver reliable power. s Electric Company has provided innovative solutions for over 100 years, and they will help you meet your energy needs. Learn more at snccom nwa. This is The Energy Gang, weekly debates and discussions about the fast changing world of energy. I'm Stephen Lacey. Welcome. The world's most scrutinized and peer reviewed document is out the IPCC report on climate change. Thousands of scientists have spent decades poring over every measurement and research report known, and the findings are clearer than ever. The crisis is here, it's now, but what does this report tell us that we didn't know before? Plus, is the push for hydrogen a real pathway or a clever way to lock in more emissions? And how far have the politics of climate really shifted in Washington? Catherine Hamilton is my co-host. She's chair of 38 North Solutions, back from vacation. Hi, Katherine.
1: Hi. Yes, I'm back in Arlington, Virginia. And pretty soon, our virtual world will come to a grinding halt as The final of my four heads for his senior year of high school in person.
0: And meanwhile, you're still stuck behind Zoom for congressional meetings, yes?
1: Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Those haven't eased (laughs) up for sure. And that's fine by me. I I get a lot of work done, so it's totally fine.
0: (laughs) And back with us is Ed Crooks, who is Vice Chairman of the Americas at Wood Mackenzie. He's in New York, and you're going to hear from him more regularly going forward with us.
2: And uh, we're delighted to have you back. Hi, Ed. Well, thanks very much indeed. Thanks for having me back. Uh, I'm in New York uh, State, but not New York City, in fact, right now. I'm on sort of, uh, I guess you'd call it semi-vacation up in the Catskills in New York State, um, doing some, uh, a bit of hiking of the, the rail trails up here, which has been very nice. And really interesting, even on semi vacation, not being able to stop thinking about energy it's been it's amazing to see when you start I don't know if you know this area, but if you hike around here, the area is absolutely covered in rail trails, and to think what a extensive rail network New York State had at one time for freight and passenger rail, all of it torn up now, and so they're all trails that people can walk and bike, which is great to have that. But um makes you realize just what a huge change uh, becoming the automobile was uh, in this area, absolutely transforming, transforming the landscape and everything.
0: I realize both of you are actually have chairs in your title, you're, you're chair people. How do I get a chair in my name? <laughs> 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 I run my own I, company. I guess I could just stick chair in my title. Yeah, totally. Exactly, mine totally. Exactly mine that. was
1: given me by my business partner. He's like, all right, now you're the chair. I'm like, okay, <laughs> I'm the chair.
0: All right, let's turn to something that's uh, decidedly more serious, the latest IPCC report. If the first IPCC report published in 1990 was a label on your smoke detector warning you to be prepared for fire, this year's IPCC report is every smoke detector in your house blaring loudly at 4 a.m. while flames dance beneath your door. The newest report from the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change is as clear as you can get in science. Virtually... All the rapid warming we are measuring on the planet right now is caused by human activity, and it's making extreme weather, particularly extreme heat, worse. There's this common framing that we've all historically used when describing climate change. It's not causing any one disaster. It's an underlying factor. Um, But we now have a lot Better attribution science showing that many of the extremes that we're witnessing right now, for example, like the heat waves in the Pacific Northwest or the floods in Germany, they're more likely or far more intense as a result of human caused climate change. And we'll get into that a bit. And the IPCC report is just clearer than ever. It is virtually certain that the increases in extreme temperatures and droughts are caused by human activity. That's basically like 99%, 100% certainty. So, Let's talk about what is in here. And first, we can start with what's different from previous IPCC reports. Catherine, how is this different from previous publications?
1: Yeah, can I just talk a little bit about the context? So this this was started in 1988, this group of the IPCC, CC, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, was was made up from the United Nations Environmental Program and the World Meteorological Organization. And basically, the structure was to get all of these science scientists together that not only would collaborate and pull together all the science but also have to work with all of the member countries of which now there are 195 and in order to release a report which they do every few years this is the sixth assessment since 1988 it's 3900 pages um they have to have the approval of all of the countries, all of those diplomats and the scientists. And so just to get that done, it, it has meant that it's been pretty conservative. And so the language that has been used in the report has really been very much about, you know, this is this is a likely occurrence or this is um, more likely than not. Well, this the way it is written now, and I and I I get this directly from Michael Mann, who was who's a climate scientist and was um, a guest on the show on the podcast Outrage and Optimism with Christiana Figueres, who was one of the UN Framework Secretaries um, for these um, for the Conference of Parties um, and her team. That he's basically saying this is as close as you will ever see of scientists screaming at the top of their lungs from tall buildings, that this is code read for humanity, That and this is just the first working group report. So there's three working groups, science, impact, and mitigation, and this is the first report, and it's basically the scientists saying absolute certainty, that this is that, that there's no doubt at this point that this is human-caused and that it is because of the way we use our energy and the way that we put uh, carbon into the atmosphere.
0: That's a really helpful framing, and and the, the report goes on to say it is established fact that human caused emissions have led to an increased frequency and or intensity of some weather and climate extremes. It takes a lot for that many scientists to come together and agree on that strong a language. Um, so, so very helpful to to set up the context around the language here and why it differs. Ed, does anything jump out to you here from previous reports or how this is framed by scientists? Um, What what, what did you read into this?
2: Yeah, I mean, so I agree with uh, Catherine a lot about uh, the key points in terms of the the certainty and the the confidence um, in their understanding of the science and and the broad trends in terms of what's happening with global warming and also in terms of uh, some of the consequences. As you say, you mentioned heat waves being one, extreme precipitation, um, what they call ecological and agricultural droughts, in other words, droughts that hit ecosystems affect agricultural production. Those are all things they now say they have very uh, strong confidence uh, in those being caused by global warming. So that's all very striking and very clear. On the more positive side, though, there was something I thought was also quite interesting. And I I guess I have to be a little bit careful in my words here. I don't want to be kind of misinterpreted at all. I'm not trying to say that there's um, we're. They're suggesting that I'm suggesting or they're suggesting there's kind of not really a problem or it's nothing to worry about. But there is definitely some better news in there in terms of what they're saying about scenarios for the future. Uh, You may have come across this um, very intense debate that's been raging for the past couple of years about um, what's been called the RCPs of representative concentration pathways, in particular, this uh, scenario for kind of the outlook for the climate, what's called RCP 8.5. Um, which is a much-used scenario that people have kind of been studying to think about what might happen to the climate.
0: Yeah, that's like a, basically an unchecked emission scenario. It's exactly. one of the
2: worst that could happen. Exactly, yeah. And that's kind of emissions going up and away. And what's now uh, being said by the IPCC in this AR6 is that na- that uh, scenario now looks highly unlikely. It does not look like we're on... A course to that kind of outcome which essentially the kind of median expectation in that scenario would be global warming of about four and a half degrees centigrade by the end of the century so absolutely disastrous catastrophic scenario but as I say it looks like probably that can be avoided reason being essentially and we're going to get more detail on this um Next year, when the IPCC talks more about um, mitigation and adaptation, but the crucial thing that's uh, kind of driving this really kind of apocalyptic scenario is the idea that the world will burn a whole lot more fossil fuels, and in particular, a lot more coal, in the second half of this century, and that really doesn't now look terribly likely. If you look at kind of trajectory that the world is on because renewables are growing so fast in particular, because also natural gas is taking a bit of share away from coal, but really growth of renewables being the key thing. um, Essentially, it looks like global consumption of coal is roughly plateauing around now and is going to start to fall in coming decades. It's still growing in Asia, of course, and we still hear a lot about how China's building new coal-fired power plants, and that's absolutely true, but also coal is being driven out of Europe and also North America Pretty rapidly, and those two effects roughly balancing each other out. And so, basically, as I say, coal is on a plateau. It doesn't look, I mean, it's not 100% impossible, never say never, but it really looks pretty unlikely that coal consumption will suddenly start to rocket again in the second half of this decade. And we're getting the IPCC now acknowledging that. And they say they're not, you know, they, they show various other scenarios um, for the way the world might look, and they say they're not putting Uh, any particular probability on those scenarios. And the scenario uh, that looks the most likely currently is absolutely still not a great one. Um, The one they're calling SSP2 4.5. That still puts us on course for about 2.7 degrees centigrade of uh, warming by the end of the century. That's Absolutely not a good outcome for the world. It's definitely something we would want to avoid. But as I say, it is at least that kind of good news, uh, which is that it's not the totally apocalyptic scenario that ten or twenty years ago looked much more plausible.
0: Catherine is our resident optimist here. We've got to find room for two optimists.
1: <laughs> oh no. This is no actually this is, <laughs> I'm I'm not as optimistic. Like there's only about a fifty percent chance that the global temperature rise will stay below one and a half degrees because what it's going to require is for us to reduce co2 emissions 50 percent by 2030 and net zero by 2050 and right now that is not what we're on track to do right we may not be on track to continue building out massive quantities of coal but right now i mean extreme weather is on the rise and it will increase and um It turns out the big Google searches around the IPCC report were how do I survive climate change and how high above sea level do I live? And um, on the how to survive climate change, guess what? Everyone is impacted. Every single region has something that will impact it. Now, certainly there's some places that are going to be um, more dramatically impacted than others, but everybody is impacted by this. And many of these changes are irreversible. And we don't really know how they're going to spin out, like with permafrost. That's going to be really tricky because it releases 66 billion tons of CO2 for every additional degree that that we are raising. And I just think that unless we do some pretty dramatic things, um, the Earth's temperature will continue to increase in ways that I just don't think we know exactly what's going to end up happening. And so I do believe that this code red for humanity is a good way to put it and that we need to be able to kind of shock ourselves into doing a lot more, a lot faster.
2: Yeah, no, I mean, I, I, I totally agree with that. And I do think, as you say, one of the crucial messages uh, from this report is that uh, 1.5 degrees See uh, uh, that limit to global warming, which was the kind of the stretch goal, if you like, of the Paris Agreement, that now looks very, very difficult to achieve. And that's a really important point and a very disturbing conclusion. But I guess maybe just to try and rescue a little bit for, for optimism here, I mean, one of the conclusions I take from this is that what it shows is that climate policy works. Sometimes you hear a very sort of negative adverse view of climate policy and people say, well, we've been, you know, talking and talking about this, you know, back to Kyoto ninety seven, back before that even, and there's been all this talk and nothing's really happened and still fossil fuels are the same share of global energy as they were back in the nineties and it just proves it's a great big talking shop and nothing's really changed. I think that's really Unfair to put it that way. Actually, I think a lot has changed. I think the boom that we've seen in renewable energy and the boom that we uh, expect to continue for decades to come, a lot of that has been driven by climate policy. It's been driven by very deliberate decisions by governments in North America, in Europe, in Asia, decisions to subsidize and support those renewable energy industries to get them to the point where they can grow now and will increasingly be able to grow without subsidy in the future. And that's a really important shift. And that is something that we have managed to achieve as a global community. And that kind of bending that curve and bending us away from the worst possible outcomes, that's a real achievement. And I think we should acknowledge that.
1: Yeah, Ed, I totally agree. We do have solutions that we just need to deploy faster. Um, I also think that hopefully, and, and you see things in agencies like the International Energy Agency that is typically quite conservative and has and has also been, you know, in the past a booster for fossil fuels with oil and gas funding, a lot of what they do, they've really changed their tune. And so when you see institutions like that, um, changing their the way they're messaging about this to say, we really do need to do something and we need to stop building coal and we need to rollback on all other fossil fuel emissions and that we have solutions to do so, I think that is all to the good.
0: So the final piece for me on what's changed is the attribution science. And this is a relatively new field of research that is using sophisticated climate models that is tying specific events to climate change, to actually human emitted uh, carbon dioxide and other greenhouse gases. And so you can, through really sophisticated models, show how much more likely an event was uh, because of the greenhouse gas emissions in the atmosphere. And we've shown that uh, the record-breaking heat wave in Europe was perhaps as much as 100 times more likely, and that the record rainfall from Hurricane Harvey in 2017, um, the the chances of that kind of rainfall were tripled because of, of climate change, because of human-caused climate change. And so there is some debate over... The effectiveness of these models, and it's, as I said, a relatively new field of research, but there's enough research out there that these thousands of scientists could say with confidence that um, the findings show that we can very clearly link the the frequency or the likelihood of these events to climate change. That is very new, it's different from what we saw in the fifth IPCC report. So clearly, just a period of six or seven years has changed the way the scientific community is talking about this drastically. Let's go over to how people are receiving this. I want to think about how this is covered in the media, how this is thought about in industry, and how it's being received in the political world. Um, Let's start first with policy, politics. Catherine, um, this landed big among the climate-concerned but what about in the political world?
1: Yeah, I I was on vacation (laughs) at the (laughs) time, so I was uh, really grateful that I didn't have the news on. I mean, I was certainly seeing a lot on Twitter about this, Um, and I've reached out to a lot of folks, too, and and certainly Congress has been just very motivated, uh, the Democrats especially, to get things done Um, In this sort of second bill that they're working on, they just got the infrastructure, bipartisan infrastructure bill done, um, which was which has some pieces in it that are very supportive of climate mitigation. But the next big piece is kind of going to be much more focused on climate uh, solutions and put more money to that. And I think that just put a little more wind in their sails to say, all right, now we really have to make sure we do this. And. Um, I I think that is, that's super important. And I think that, you know, one thing that we have learned over the years, and since this report first came out in 1988, or when they first started this in 1988, is that The science has been really strong, and as we've gotten better and better at modeling, we've gone back and look at what was originally done, and it's still pretty good. So you've mentioned, Stephen, that although the attribution piece is new, when we go back and check our work, it's been quite accurate. And I think that the folks in Congress, the policymakers, and even around the country, that are looking to the science are seeing that if we can just rely on the science and we can peg our policy to that, then we're going to be able to figure out some policy solutions.
0: Well, we'll get deeper into that in our third segment when we talk about how the framing is changing among Republicans. Ed, any thoughts on any of those areas on politics, the media or industry?
2: Yeah, I mean, there hasn't been a huge response in the industry either, to be honest. But I I think What's kind of interesting about it, what really strikes me about it, is the way it solidifies what is now a very strong consensus in the oil and gas industry everywhere else that climate change is real, it's happening, and it's man-made. And I think that is a big shift. You know, That's not a shift this year, but it is a shift definitely over the past 10 years, 15 years, 20 years, even 15 years ago. It would be quite common to hear people say, well, yeah, the climate's changing, but it's always changed and there's nothing special about what's happening now, or I don't believe the data, or if you look into uh, what's really happening in the temperature record, it shows that the earth isn't really warming and all those kind of things. Nowadays, you hear almost none of that. That whole kind of strand of argument has really pretty well disappeared. The debate is no longer at all about what's happening, whether it's serious, whether it's man-made. Whether it's something that needs to be addressed, the debate is about how should it be addressed? What are the best solutions? What are the best ways of managing all the trade-offs um, necessarily raised by tackling the threat of climate change? And that's that's really where we, where we are now. And I think that's just interesting to see, as as you both been saying. You know, when you think about um, what this sixth assessment report has been saying, that's the the point really. There is. We're not arguing about the science anymore. We're not arguing about the diagnosis. We're arguing about the prescriptions, and that's really, uh, I think now, a very, very broadly shared consensus view.
0: So I'll touch on the the media piece. Uh, I get annoyed when people use the the term media to describe a lot of different kinds of outlets. As someone who's been in the media world my entire career, so um, I'll. Talk mostly about television news, which has really failed to cover climate change extensively. I think generally uh, print and web publications have done a fantastic job and you have a lot of uh, mainstream newspapers and energy and climate specific organizations that have found ways to tell the story of climate change that isn't just about alarmism, but that really links climate change to every piece of our lives. And so the IPCC report is a bigger part of that coverage. But in the world of television news, what you saw is what we see every time there's a catastrophic event. They all swoop in, they do a bunch of segments on it, and then coverage drops off. We did see a significant amount of coverage from MSNBC. They aired 26 segments, according to Media Matters, when the report dropped. Um, CNN Aired far fewer fifteen segments um, and devoted only thirty three minutes to the first on the first day that the report dropped. I mean actually think about that for a minute thirty three minutes among a twenty four hour news cycle. It's pretty remarkable that a report of this magnitude is only getting that much coverage and then coverage drops off immediately within a couple of days. interestingly, going back to what you said, Ed, about the change in or the the the, the disappearance of denial. Fox News didn't really cover the report much at all. It had some segments on climate skepticism, but it mostly just stayed silent and it avoided it. Usually in the past, it would deploy an army of skeptics to get on the shows and talk about why the data is falsified. But like that didn't really happen this time around. They just kind of ignored it. And that's indicative of, I think, a broader shift that we'll talk about a little bit later in the show, so all around, I think fairly good grades for print reporters who are covering this in a more nuanced way and more regular, more regularly, and pretty poor grades for the television uh, news outlets that are kind of swooping in and then swooping back out. The Energy Gang is brought to you by SunGrow. SunGrow is the leading global supplier of inverter solutions for renewables. This year, SunGrow is supplying more than 1.5 gigawatt hours of energy storage to projects across North America. Among these projects is the Chisholm Grid battery storage project in Fort Worth, Texas. Chisholm Grid will use SunGrow's advanced converters and controls in a long-term services contract to meet the demanding ERCOT market conditions while reducing operating costs and extending the lifespan of the assets. To learn more about SunGrow's work in the battery storage business, email them at info at sungrowamericas.com. We're also brought to you by s Electric. Solving power-related challenges requires careful consideration before making major investments. If you're a utility or commercial enterprise today, you're faced with a critical decision. Are you going to select a conventional wired approach or respond in a non-conventional way? And even with dedicated in-house resources, getting to that conclusion can be uncertain and time-consuming. You can evaluate these big decisions more efficiently and with confidence. By working with an integrator like SNC Electric Company, SNC will be with you every step of the way, thoroughly working through your challenges and reviewing your energy needs to offer an expanded set of options specifically for you. Learn more at SNC.com/slash NWA. Hydrogen is suddenly getting a lot of attention and investment from governments and oil majors. UK, Germany, and France are all allocating billions of euros to support blue and green hydrogen. The Hydrogen Council, a trade group made up of mostly oil majors, says the hydrogen economy could amount to $2.5 trillion in revenue by 2050. But some experts are a little worried, they're skeptical, some are raising alarm about these claims saying that they would be costly, inefficient, and environmentally troublesome uh, when we think about the emissions pathways that we need to be on right now. So. This month, the, the head of the UK Hydrogen and Fuel Cell Association actually stepped down in protest saying that oil majors were pushing emissions-intensive blue hydrogen from national, natural gas as a climate solution and using hydrogen as a way to lock in fossil fuel expansion. Now we can talk about what he means by that because in theory, blue hydrogen should be less emissions-intensive, but we're going to go into some research about why there are questions about how many emissions we can actually attribute to blue hydrogen production. In fact, just a couple weeks ago, researchers from Cornell and Stanford issued a peer-reviewed study showing that life cycle emissions from blue hydrogen are 20% higher than directly burning gas for heat because of the inefficiencies in the conversion process and because of methane leakage, and they actually called it a distraction. So look, uh, hydrogen production is getting much more serious. It's highly, highly valuable product, particularly in industrial uses. And there's a big question about whether we're going to use them for downstream applications. Again, we'll get into that. But oil companies are rolling out their plans for hydrogen production. And I we want to figure out what is meaningful and what is distracting. So Ed, let's start with the different hydrogen colors. We've got Green versus blue versus gray versus brown. There's even yellow, pink, turquoise hydrogen. Uh, we don't have to go into all of them, but what what are the main ones?
2: Right. So, so the key ones that everyone really needs to know about, I guess, are probably uh, gray and blue and green, because those are the the biggest one currently is gray, which is that is hydrogen made from natural gas by a process called steam methane reforming, which is Essentially, you strip the hydrogen out of natural gas. There's a couple of processes that happen to it. And you basically end up with hydrogen and a stream of exhaust gases, which includes a lot of carbon monoxide and carbon dioxide, which I guess is what we'll come to in a moment. But crucially, um, that, that's a lot of greenhouse gases being pumped out as a result of making that hydrogen. Then what people talk about when, we, when they talk about um, hydrogen as a low carbon solution is blue hydrogen or green hydrogen. Blue hydrogen then takes that same grey hydrogen uh, that results in a lot of carbon dioxide emissions and captures and sequesters the carbon dioxide familiar kind of process has been tried uh, lots of places around the world already, technology that's been around since the 1970s, to capture it and compress the hydrogen, pump it under the ground, where the idea is it will remain for centuries. And then green hydrogen is the newer, even newer kind of idea, which is making it essentially from splitting water. Electrolysis of water, whenever you've got, um, uh, you know, current through water, you can uh, break it down. H2O breaks down into hydrogen and oxygen, and you can use the hydrogen that way. That, at the moment, it's a very, very small amount of production is done that way. It's still relatively expensive. It's very expensive compared to conventional grey hydrogen. It's something that potentially has got quite a lot of promise, particularly for those kind of occasions when you might have a kind of surplus power that you don't know what to do with otherwise. So, for instance, if you're um, what we have in West Texas at the moment, uh, at nighttime when there's a lot of wind power... Not, not much demand for electricity or california in the middle of the day when the sun is shining excess solar power being generated um, relative to the demand for it you could use some of that to make hydrogen at a very very low cost and so that's one of the kind of the key uses and then of course hydrogen like any gas it could be stored it has somewhat tricky characteristics um can react with pipelines and storage tanks you need to store it carefully but it can be stored um and then used whenever you want to use it. So uh, I mean, for instance, one of the things you could then do with it is to generate power with it. So essentially, it could be used as a energy storage technology, uh, and a potentially a long duration energy storage technology. So there's a lot of interest in it, a lot of interest in that. And also similarly, in blue hydrogen as a potential low carbon solution, as I say, at the early stages now. But It's one of these things where, I mean, my feeling about hydrogen is a bit like, um, you know, that famous Winston Churchill uh, quote about democracy, it's the worst option except for all the others. You know, (laughs) there are um, some uses, as I say, particularly long duration storage, some industrial processes, making steel, for instance, where um, it's actually really hard to find low carbon solutions. Uh, Renewable energy probably isn't going to do it. We're going to need something else, and it may well be that hydrogen can uh, fill a gap there. So as I say, it's early stages, still an industry in its infancy, but potentially, I think, very promising.
0: So is it mostly – who is getting behind hydrogen production? Is it a lot of oil and gas majors? I mean, we we keep hearing about all this activity. Where is it coming from?
2: Yeah, definitely quite a few um, oil and gas companies are interested Um, Some power companies are interested. There's many um, specialised hydrogen companies. There are also companies in the transport industry that are interested in the potential of hydrogen fuel cells to power vehicles. I think personally, it's unlikely that's going to be a very compelling solution for passenger cars and so on, where I think battery electric vehicles really look like they're going to win that race. But actually, for long distance transport, heavy transport may well be the case that hydrogen fuel cells are going to be useful. So you're seeing these kind of broad coalitions of companies uh, investing in the technology, investing in R&D to try and bring it to a commercial scale. So a lot of activity going on. Um, and certainly, I mean, I, I think you mentioned this uh, this study kind of challenging the the green credentials of blue hydrogen, if you like. That's potentially a very serious issue for the industry because it's very much presenting itself as a... Low carbon, zero carbon solution. If we can't establish that, then it's in trouble.
0: Yeah. So let's get into that, um, Catherine. You talked to Robert Howarth of Cornell, uh, one of the lead researchers, and he talked to you through the research. What are What did they find about the environmental impact of the resource of so blue hydrogen that uses ca- kind of carbon capture? to create hydrogen from gas.
1: So the first thing I asked Dr. Howarth from Cornell, my alma mater by the way, I was very happy that he came from Cornell, um, is why did you do this? Like what instigated this? And he is on this Climate Action Council for the state of New York. There are 22 people on it that are in charge of developing a plan to get New York carbon neutral by 2050, 40% reduction by 2040. And there were a lot of proposals for blue hydrogen. And he said, wow, this is so interesting. What is this? What does it mean? First of all, he just learned about what blue hydrogen is, because basically, that is a term that was invented by Air Liquide, which is a big gas producer for industrial processes back in 2015. They just created that term. There wasn't any, you know, it was just something that they invented. And so he didn't really know what it was. And he said, all right, well, let me figure this out and, and, tr- and try to see you know, if we're going to propose this as one of the major ways to get to carbon neutrality, and in fact, governments are subsidizing plants all over the world, what does that mean? Like, what does the footprint really look like? And what they found was that surprisingly, even though we hear a lot about carbon capture, and there should be a lot of data, there really aren't any very many plants that have, there have been no plants built from natural gas. And they're only, there are only about 12 coal plants that do carbon capture and only two with data. So they used all of the data from a plant in Alberta and Texas that they could to try to figure out what does this really do and what is the profile. And from a very high level, what they found is that the total CO2 equivalent emissions for blue hydrogen are only between nine and 12% less than that for gray hydrogen. However, when, because you need more natural gas in the process, and you're creating much more methane emissions, the greenhouse gas footprint of blue hydrogen is 20% more than burning natural gas or coal for heat, and 60% more than burning diesel oil for heat. So, it was really stunning and part of it is because the pr- of the process. So first you need a lot of gas to he- to heat methane and break up CO2 from hydrogen. So then you can use that hydrogen just as as you know as, as we're talking about any kind of hydrogen that's where you're producing hydrogen. But then once you have the CO2, you then have to capture the emissions from that as well because you have CO2 in both parts of the chain. Um, And so you're never going to be able to capture all of that CO2. um, And it takes so much more to create the energy. So you're creating more methane and you're creating more CO2. And this whole injection bit about putting it in for storage, most of that is injected to enhance um, oil recovery. So a lot of that has not been used in ways that you would think it could be potentially used for energy storage. So... um, Throughout the process, because you have to have more natural gas um, and be- it creates more both methane, and, and methane is something that uh, Bob Howarth is, is quite an expert on and has a, a long reputation on you know, sort of the modeling around uh, methane emissions, um, and because of the, the all of the different ways in which you have to use natural gas within the process, it is actually a lot worse.
0: Ed, what are you hearing from industry in terms of their reaction to this research? Oh, well, there's, there's
2: been a huge amount of pushback to it, in fact. And um, I think people have challenged a lot of the assumptions uh, made throughout the piece uh, at various points in order to make those calculations. Um, I mean, just a couple of things. So for instance, um, the study uses a, a leakage rate of 3.5%, says that um, on average, 3.5% of uh, natural gas that's produced and uh, transported gets released as methane. There are some estimates that say that definitely, and and you know, we've had uh, estimates, for instance, from the uh, EDF talking about that as the rate in the Permian Basin, West Texas. The EPA actually, for its own calculations, uses a much lower rate of just 1.4%. That makes quite a significant difference to the calculations, depending on what rate you use. Now, it may well be that the higher rate is the right one, and there's quite a lively scientific debate at the moment about what the right rate is, but it is definitely the case that if you could bring that rate down, it would make a big difference. There's a lot of pressure in the industry at the moment to bring down the rate of methane leakage, so that would certainly make a difference. Then there's the question of um, how much of the carbon emissions from the hydrogen production process are you actually capturing? Uh, As far as I can tell, I think it's about 50%. I think the kind of what the the study says is that you're capturing at best 50% of the carbon emissions from the production process, which, as uh, Catherine's been saying, that's probably kind of supportable by the limited evidence that exists at the moment. When you hear people talk about how they're going to do it they talk about much higher rates and they say they're going to be able to capture 90% of the emissions. So um, it has yet to be proven, but certainly it could be a lot better, I think, than this study is suggesting. And then the third thing, which is a tricky question, I don't think there's a right answer, but I mean, it's almost a philosophical debate, but I think it's worth getting into, is the question of the global warming impact of methane. Methane's A very potent greenhouse gas, many times more potent than carbon dioxide, but it breaks down in the atmosphere. So its potency at the um, 20-year mark is significantly higher than its potency at the 100-year mark. Roughly speaking, it's about 86 times more potent than carbon dioxide after 20 years, and about 34 times more potent than carbon dioxide in 100 years. And what you're doing, essentially, in this hydrogen process, if if you're capturing the carbon, as Catherine says, basically you're kind of using, you're having a, a bit more methane and a bit less CO2. Um, and whether that kind of methane for CO2 trade-off makes sense depends a lot on what time horizon you're looking at. And the study very uh, definitely only uses the 20-year horizon, which gives then a much greater weight to methane. I think it's arguable that we want to look at the 100-year horizon because that's the horizon in terms of long-term climate impact. That's one that kind of we often think about, and it's these long-term questions of climate impact that are really significant. I think you you could argue it either way. There's not an obvious right answer, but I think it's worth noting that this study does very definitely kind of put all that weight on the short-term impacts. So, I mean, bottom line, um, as I say, a lot of pushback, a lot of criticism. I think it's a very valuable contribution to the debate. I think it's a real kind of warning shot to say, hey, it's not as easy as some people might have you believe. This is not something where you just say blue hydrogen and, and magically it's a wonderful low carbon solution. And there definitely there issues need to be addressed such as the rate of methane leakage. I don't think it's the last word on it, though I absolutely don't think this is going to kind of kill off the blue hydrogen industry forever. I'm sure we'll see more studies on this. There's going to be a very lively debate. And I certainly think that it is possible blue hydrogen could still play an important role. As I say, for those reasons I've been talking about, essentially that there are some uses where we don't really have a good alternative to hydrogen. We're going to need all the low carbon hydrogen we can get and I still think it's possible that blue hydrogen could be part of that.
0: So a couple I want to hear about what what how Bob Holworth might respond to that Catherine. I think the final point that you made about the 20 year time horizon uh, I would say is vital because when we consider what the IPCC report is telling us that to get to a you know 1.5 degree C warming scenario, you need to reduce emissions six percent a year, which is basically the equivalent of a COVID type disruption every single year over the next couple of decades. We need massively drastic change and, and that, that change is still drastic even under a two degrees C warming scenario. So it feels to me like even just for you know, thinking about the impacts over the next couple of decades is vitally important. Um Anything else, Catherine, that you would add on, on the on the what Bob told you?
1: Yeah, a couple of things. One is that this is the first peer reviewed report of this type, and it and I agree they're going to need to be lots more, and they're going to have to try to really dig in. And the reason you you want to do that is, as you said, Stephen, because of the IPCC report, and because governments are. Sp- spending a ton of money subsidizing these blue hydrogen plants and with the assumption that they're going to reduce emissions and if that is in fact not the case then we're in real trouble we're in worse trouble than we were before so part of this is like let's make sure we get it right um bob howarth did a uh, a study about 10 years ago, the first peer reviewed study on methane emissions from shale gas. And that was also poo pooed. And there were a, um, a lot of people immediately that pushed back, most of whom were related to the fossil fuel industry. But now, 10 years on, there are between 1,500, 1,600 papers, about 80 to 85% of which support his conclu- original conclusions. And so I think it will take some time to figure that out. But in the meantime, these are just asking really vital questions about you know, where are the data? that either show definitively or not that you're actually reducing greenhouse gases um, and and then how are we gonna support those or not support them? Because out of 1,000 oil and gas companies, 42% of them are saying, they're, we're gonna do this. And you know it, it involves an entire infrastructure of pipelines and shipping and storage and all of this is affected by whatever the technology they determine is going to be lower carbon and you really wanna get it right. So I think asking these questions now is crucial.
0: Yeah. This is one of the first shots across the bow so to speak when it comes to the debate over hydrogen production and where we w- its role in the energy transition. And this goes back in my opinion to what Saul Griffith of Rewiring America has said, which is that hydrogen production has a role. You know, we obviously as you said Ed, we use it for fertilizer production, for treating metals for rocket fuel, like there's a lot of reasons why we would want to clean up the hydrogen system and use blue and green hydrogen at greater levels, because those are just difficult to decarbonize sectors of the economy. But when it comes to downstream applications like fueling cars and buses, uh, widespread applications for fuel cells beyond, you know, forklifts and you know warehouse warehouse applications i think it's really doubtful about what role hydrogen plays and so these decisions we make about whether it's green or blue hydrogen have a greater impact the more we rely on it f- for downstream applications and and you know Saul's very critical of using hydrogen because there's just a you know the conversion process is inefficient and the more we burn stuff and the more we convert it from electrons to molecules and back again, the greater the inefficiencies of the system. And so his belief is that we should just electrify as much as possible, particularly downstream uh, machines in our homes and businesses, and then use hydrogen for, you know, higher level industrial applications. So anyway, uh, this research is certainly very important and I think becomes more crucial the more we think about where hydrogen production lands across our economy,
1: yeah. And I, uh, Michael Liebreich has a pretty interesting ladder that he's put together of hydrogen and all the use cases and you know different sectors that it would make sense make sense in. You know where is it uncompetitive where and where is it unavoidable? And just to think about this being five to seven times more expensive than than just business as usual, you really have to think about, you know, where where are the places where it's going to be the most useful and the most cost competitive um, for an industry that is trying to transition.
2: Totally agree with all of that. I think there are probably some areas, though, where we just don't have other options. And as I say, maybe long distance, heavy road freight transport is one of them. Certainly, I think steel production is one of them. If you look at steel manufacturing, a lot of those, um, a lot of the green steel technologies use hydrogen for production that's a way to decarbonize what is what's currently a very carbon intensive sector so not for everything i agree totally agree it has its limitations but i think there are also some important cases where i just don't see another option absolutely i agree with that
0: and what am i going to do with my partially hydrogenated soybean oil i mean (laughs) it's got to be green or blue i don't know (laughs) All right. Let's go on to the third topic. As Democrats push sweeping climate priorities through the White House and through Congress, there's been a noticeable change in the political conversation. Almost no climate denial from Republicans. And Republicans have mostly stopped uh, talking about climate change as a hoax or the data being manipulated. Even someone like Jim Inhofe, who's a senator from Oklahoma, who wrote a book on climate change called The Biggest Hoax is now backtracking and saying he never called climate change a hoax and he's been relatively silent on this. Um, you know, at the turn of the last decade, he was out front uh, uh, in in the, the media constantly calling this a hoax. Um, But that's changed, and we still hear some of the same arguments for sure, like a switch away from fossil fuels is way too expensive, it's going to take too long, or what about China and India and other large polluters? Um, What if if we hit step on the accelerator and they don't, are they going to have an economic advantage? And there are few meaningful proposals beyond planting trees, or maybe a carbon tax from people like Mitt Romney. Um, So we haven't seen a dramatic change in policy but certainly a change in tone. Let's talk a little bit more about how this is influencing what's going on right now in Washington. We did have a check on a check in on this before, most notably at the start of 2020 when Republicans were crafting their response to the Green New Deal and a lot of Republicans came out and criticized that that a uh, plan, but they actually came out with some plans of their own, one of which was to plant a million trees. And uh, although that does nothing to match the severity of the issue, it was a plan nonetheless, which we might not have seen in previous years. So we've got even more real world policy under consideration. We've got many more months of, of debate. Catherine, what are you seeing since we last talked about this at the start of 2020?
1: Yeah, I mean, to be clear, there is not a big GOP cross-economy proposal. There just isn't. Um, there have been a few bills introduced around the margins, but that is the bill about planting a million trees. That is not a climate plan. So there really has not been the response um, the way you would think. Now, what I did was I reached out to a few folks on both sides of the aisle um, because I, I used the IPCC report as like a way to start that conversation. And just to relay a conversation I had with a Republican staffer, He said, look, the IPCC report, it it shouldn't matter if it's 100% correct or only 50% correct. It doesn't change what we're doing. We still have to move as fast as prudently possible. He said, we have to do, you know, nothing's going to change what we're doing because we're already doing great stuff. And he said, this is what we're doing. So the IEA has said that demand will go up by 50% in the next 30 to 40 years and that means natural gas demand will go up by 40%. So we have to do two things. Whoever supplies the the gas has to be the lowest emitting kind of gas and our gas is better than Russia so we should do we should take over the gas industry we should not let russia um build Nord Stream 2 and continue to pump their natural gas out there and the second thing is that we have to use technology to um to lower those emissions and just go with the technology approach to deal with natural gas which is what we just talked about <laughs> um and he basically said this is a global view the democrats are perpetrating. um more global emissions by not looking at this from a global view. And we have to take this as a, this is a competitive issue and it's all about natural gas. That was really the main thing this fellow talked about. He also talked a little bit about agriculture and um, precision farming and that sort of thing. But really just uh, said, you know, we're doing exactly what we should be doing and we should really use more natural gas. Um, When I talked to Democrats, I talked to a member of Congress who said, uh, I haven't been talking to my GOP friends about the IPCC report because they don't really want to talk about it. But this has really given us reason to continue to work really hard to get this bill done that we're trying to do on climate. So, you know, certainly some of those members are feel like they need to double down on what they're doing. I talked to a Hill staffer who works with across the aisle um, on climate issues across committees. And this staffer said that it's definitely moved from denialism to incrementalism. But what she said was like incrementalism is just like denying, because if you don't get to where we need to go, if we go too slowly, we're going to be in the same position we may be ever so slightly better but she said we're still going to have the same outcome so she said really there there are two things that are that are problematic one is that the republicans don't acknowledge that the policies have to be consistent with the science so they don't they're not accountable to the science and they don't align with the scientific conclusions and the other thing is that they don't align with how the u.s public believes in this because the majority of the u.s public supports clean energy supports an energy transition and so that there's there are two things they're out of step with science and they're out of step with their voters um and and that's what this person said was you know they, they can talk about innovation and agricultural solutions and resilience resilience comes up a lot but they don't really dig into all right if you really believe in those things what then are the solutions that you want to put forward that are consistent with the science and will get us to where we need to go? So it was a little disheartening. Um, You know, I work with folks on both sides of the aisle. I want to work with people on both sides of the aisle. You can get some things done. I will say it's not leapfrogging what we're doing, though.
2: Yeah, no, I think it's it's all really fascinating. And I mean, one of the things that makes me think about is what the uh, long term prospects are for climate policy in the US, given good chance that the Democrats might lose control of Congress uh, next year and then of the presidency in 2024. And the US is, I think, really pretty interesting in an international context in having very little political um, uh, consensus about climate change. If you look at Uh, Europe, for instance, really right across the political spectrum. And obviously, so I follow um, British politics pretty closely. So you have the centre-right government there at the moment, the Conservative Party is in power, very large majority. They are absolutely all for setting very ambitious targets for emissions reduction. They're phasing out internal combustion engine cars and so on, really pressing ahead on that. The same would be true of centre-right governments really across Europe and in many other parts of the world. But in the US, we do have this very strong partisan divide, which is clearly going to be um, a big issue in terms of building consensus for long-term climate policy and makes you think that the role of states is going to be very important in the US. The role of um, the private sector is going to be hugely important, probably more so than in any other developed economy, probably a lot of uh, emerging economies as well. It's really going to be reliant on the private sector to change things just because you can't get a sustained period of climate policy that's kind of focused on emissions reduction and addressing climate change just because of the way the political cycle operates and the way the partisan uh, battle lines are drawn up in the US and I'm interested on in what your thoughts are, are on this Catherine but it doesn't seem to me like that's, that's going to change anytime soon.
1: Oh, the thing is, like, we haven't lost yet. I think we have coming up in the next just few weeks um, the ability to do something that is maybe a once in a generation opportunity. So we passed uh, Congress, the Senate passed a bipartisan infrastructure bill, and now the House and Senate are both writing what they call reconciliation bills, which means they only need a majority vote in the Senate to pass. And that is going to be three and a half trillion dollars a lot of which is going to go to climate change initiatives. And those could really, really change um, the markets in the U.S. It can, it will support technologies. It will take funding away from dirty technologies. It will incentivize utilities to do the right thing and shut down, allow them to be able to afford to shut down some of these old power plants that are just limping along on Social Security. And um, I think it will make a huge difference. So I I would not declare this over yet. I don't think we're done. I, I think if, if the Democrats don't get this over the finish line, they have a much greater chance of not winning back the House and Senate in the next go around. So we, we we're the efforts on climate uh, policy are not over. And in fact, they're they're quite active right now. And I think we will get a lot done um, just in the next few weeks. Certainly by the end of the year, you're going to see some really big policy shifts.
2: No, definitely. Yeah. No, sorry, I'm just going to say, I mean, I absolutely agree with that. And as you say, we're very much kind of reaching a critical moment. And that reconciliation bill is going to be hugely important. And just to flag up a couple of specific things in it, the Clean Electricity Payment Programme, which is essentially a way of uh, implementing a clean electricity standard, but doing it through uh, the budget process so it can pass under reconciliation, that's going to be a very big deal. There's um, potentially a lot for EVs, in the reconciliation bill as well, that could also be enormously important. It seems like it's really kind of finely balanced though at the moment. And if you hear the comments from um, Kirsten Sinema and from Joe Manchin, um, it seems to me not clear that you'll even get 50 Democratic votes for that kind of package in the Senate. So it's going to be interesting to watch. And as he, as 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 Catherine was saying, it's not over yet. It's all to play for, but it does feel very, very finely balanced. It's not going to be at all easy.
0: I want to talk about the underlying factors here. So let's take the actual policy outcomes aside. What is causing this shift? And a couple of things stand out to me. One is that the polling clearly shows that there's a massive climate majority in this country. Yale has some of the best polling showing that basically 75% of Americans fall on the spectrum between concerned to alarmed about climate change. And those often transcend partisan uh, boundaries. You know, obviously, far more progressives and folks on the left are concerned about climate change. But in general, the vast majority of Americans fall in the spectrum of concerned to alarmed. And that has changed um, a lot in just the last few years. And There are a lot of polls that show this as well. So Republicans are clearly paying attention to those polls and the generational divide, too, because there's a lot of young Republicans who are pushing for climate action and they're gaining a voice within the party. Um, The second piece is just that the science has gotten so much more sophisticated. And as we pointed out in our first part of the show, that there's not a whole lot of pushback on the modeling and what the science is telling us. It's mostly either folks are staying silent or they're saying it's too costly to make the transition. But the science also feels much more solid and seems to be playing a role in in this shift. Any other thoughts on that?
1: Yeah, one thing I would just note is that the oil, gas and coal industries in the 2020 election cycle gave 46 million to the Republican Party, more than they've given the Democrats over 10 years. I mean, a vast amount of industry money goes into the election campaigns of Republicans. And so they're on the hook to respond to all these industries that are supporting their elections and getting them into power. And I think, um, you know, if that could somehow be... um, Reformed, where everybody's on a level playing field and no one is being paid by any industry to to just support that industry. I think that would that would change the calculus. I mean, I've always thought, you know, if you really had to think about your constituents and the fact that. Um, they're Googling, how do I survive climate change? Uh, you know, they then you would actually want to try to do something. And maybe your solutions would be different. And that's okay. I think there are different solutions in different places and based on different resource mixes, but it would put you in a different in a different mindset on how to approach it.
2: Yeah, I agree with that. I, I mean, I would like to sound a note of warning about the polling evidence, though, which always seems to me to be a bit inconclusive. If you say to people, are you concerned about climate change? Do you support aggressive action on climate change? Then, as you say, you get very strong majorities in favour. People are well aware it's an important issue and it ought to be addressed. When you say to people, how much would you pay for it to be dealt with? The numbers are not huge. And I think there was a Reuters poll back in 2019 said, would you be prepared to pay even $100 a year for aggressive action on climate change. And I think it was only about a third of the population said yes to that. So and we have to be a bit careful in kind of assuming this kind of uh, broad range of support. Yes, people want something to be done. People don't, on the whole, want it to cost them a lot of money. And I think that's, again, when you talk about not all the solutions are gonna be the same, we're going to have to be creative about it. I think that's one thing that's going to be hugely important is finding measures that can win broad popular support. And actually, those those things are emerging, in particular because of the plunging cost of renewable energy. There are absolutely solutions where people can be saved money by switching out fossil fuels for renewables. So it, it, 100% it's possible, but uh, it does seem to me like those are all the avenues that are going to, going to be more successful is going to win more political support rather than the things that look like they're going to cost people money
1: well the uh, cost of climate damage is so far in excess of what it would cost us oh, to fix yeah, th- it so, totally I mean, totally yeah that I wonder if you're asking them would you be willing to pay a hundred dollars a year more to ensure that your home is safe from flooding and storms from climate I mean I bet that would you'd get a different answer so I do think it's how do you ask the question right
0: totally and it's, it's it's these are nuances that will go the that- most people won't even really want to grapple with, but there, you know, if you look at it, there have been a lot of an economic analyses of coal plants, for example. And you could shut down the vast majority of coal plants that are still operating and replace them with various forms of clean energy f- for far cheaper. Um, when you consider that the you know the debt that these these coal plants are under and, and so forth, and um, how those costs are passed on to ratepayers, so it's it's you know, there are tons of nuances. It depends on how you ask the question, absolutely, but. There certainly seems to be a shift among how people are perceiving this issue and is filtering into the Republican stance. And I do think that that brings us to our free electrons. It's time to round out the show.
2: Um, Ed, what's your free electron? So my f- uh, my free electron is something um, that I've noticed at the end of the road, as I say, been been staying in the canticles here. And there's a little campaign going and people have put up uh, lawn signs saying, no solar power plant here. And I'm afraid I have to say kind of made me roll my eyes a little bit. I mean, so this is a state, we're in New York State here, which is um, successfully fought to uh, prevent fracking. There's been campaigns, I know just up the road from where I am right now, they've had campaigns against uh, wind power and they've stopped wind turbines being sited. There was a campaign uh, successfully uh, to shut down the Indian Point nuclear power plant. People don't want pipelines. At the end of the day, um, people do need energy. It has to come from somewhere. And I think it's a real problem if people don't accept it. And of course, if you talk to people, they will say, oh, yeah, I'm very much in favor of renewable energy in principle. I just don't want it here in this village. And uh, there was someone quoted in the local paper saying, I have to look at this when I look out of my kitchen window. And you think, actually, it's a really fundamental problem. It's one of of, uh, the great things, in a sense, about the American system is everyone has rights, everyone gets a say, environmental impacts are looked at very comprehensively and very thoroughly. But if you're going to get the kind of investment you need to really make that energy transition and really shift the energy system very fundamentally away from fossil fuels towards renewables, zero carbon energy, you're probably going to have to move a bit faster. And that may mean at times people just having to put up with a a solar plant in their village even if they didn't really want one.
0: Couldn't agree more. And for folks who want to talk about more of the or hear more about the intricacies of American policy and why this prevents a lot of projects like this uh, and makes it just difficult to build infrastructure generally, go back to our conversation a couple weeks ago with Ed. We talked extensively about this. So um, an important story. Catherine, what's your free electron?
1: Yeah, so this is somewhat related to there's a really good Twitter thread by Ellen Nilsson. N-I-L-S-E-N. She is the CNN climate reporter, and she put out a chart that Majority Leader Schumer has put out about how do we get to our, you know, the president has set a 50% target by 2030 for clean electricity, and Schumer's office says, given what we're looking at now in this reconciliation package, it'll get us to about 45%, and the other 5% will come from state Actions that Ed mentioned, and so this 45% could could would contain a, a big piece of it is this clean electricity payment program, clean vehicles, methane fee, um, the accelerator, clean building incentives, um, fossil fuel subsidy repeals, agriculture and forest management. There's a whole bunch of pieces of this pie, and so it's worth just taking a look at to see it. It's I think it's a fairly rough estimate of how to get to 45%, and then what are those other five percent? come from um and i i noted that governor john bell edwards from louisiana who's a second term democratic governor um has a climate initiatives task force, and their draft portfolio of climate mitigation strategies includes fifty percent RPS (Renewable Portfolio Standard) by twenty thirty five, green tariffs, accelerating decommissioning of fossil plants, um, virtual um, power purchase agreements, long range transmission planning, a storage target of a gigawatt, offshore wind. It's it's just incredible. Um, what some states that are, this is an oil and gas state, and he's trying to move the needle down there and have them to think uh, a little more broadly about how can we really build our economy by doing a clean energy transition. And one of the things that just uh, makes me pull my hair out is when I hear people say, oh, you know, everybody just needs to change out their light bulbs. And then (laughs) it's like, no, you know what everybody needs to do? Everybody needs to pick up the phone and call their governors or their senators or their representatives in Congress to say, you need to do these public policies that are gonna really make a difference because me changing my light bulb might make me feel better, but that's not what's gonna move the needle. So I'm optimistic on moving the needle, as you all have all heard, but I also think it takes all of us, and it takes all of us um, putting pressure on the people that that uh, need to move.
0: Amen. Well, when it comes to uh, the difficulties in building out these solutions, my, my Free Electron is somewhat similar to Ed's. It's about the, the the noise of wind turbines and why it can make for difficult siting near communities. Uh, look, the, the research clearly shows that there's no such thing as wind turbine syndrome, that You know, wind turbines don't cause cancer or (laughs) flesh eating bacteria or, uh, you know, they they don't cause bird deaths that are greater than other causes. Uh, But they do create annoying sounds to some people who live close to wind turbines. And as someone, as I've mentioned on the show before, like I, I live in East Boston next to the airport. I'm in an industrial area. There's just constant industrial activity and planes flying overhead and I find it highly annoying and stressful. Now, is it causing me anything other than you know, low-level stress all the time? Probably not. Uh, but the, 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 this five-year study from the Australian government looked at w- when wind turbine noise had the greatest impact, and they found that it came at nighttime. And uh, that's because during night, you have different wind speeds, Um, you're more sensitive to noise, and you have what's called amplitude modulation. And the noise, they said, seems to worsen after sunset when amplitude modulation can be detected for up to 60% of uh, the nighttime at distances around one kilometer from a wind farm. So that means that 60% of the time, if you live about a kilometer away from a wind farm, you may be annoyed by the sound. We're getting a lot smarter about how we build these machines and where we site them. But we shouldn't always discount the the, the auditory impact on communities. And again, this is not causing major health problems in people, but they can be annoying. And so uh, I think that there's, there's research that shows, like, how and where the impact is greatest, and developers have certainly learned from that.
1: Yeah, for someone who lives right near an airport where I have fighter jets taking off, the sound of wind turbine sounds delightful to me. <laughs> <laughs>
0: well, I can tell you when I have my face mask on at, at 11 o'clock at night and I'm sleeping and like the latest Qatar Airlines flies over my house like 500
2: feet above my roof, it is uh, is highly annoying. Um. <laughs> so so my uh, in-laws have a wind farm at the uh, sort of just next, they have a farm and it's just next door to their farm, um, which caused a scare about a UFO invasion once. Oh, well, I feel like with that's the lights, a, the blinking like, lights that's, at a, the top. That's, a, that's a story for another time.
0: <laughs> uh, Ed Crooks, Vice Chair of the Americas at Wood Mackenzie. Thanks for joining us again. Always good to chat and we'll talk to you more. Thank you. See you soon. Catherine, always a pleasure. Welcome back from vacation. Thanks. Delighted to be back. And we'll let Ed go on to the rest of his vacation. And uh, me, I'll stuck. I'll be stuck here under the airplanes in East Boston. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, everyone, for being here. We are produced by Postscript Media in partnership with Wood Mackenzie. You can find all of us on social media on Twitter. If you want to um, send us any story ideas or comment on this show and the many topics that we discussed Go ahead and do that right there on Twitter, and we'll try to get back to you. We will be back next week, and thank you so much for being here. This is the Energy Gang weekly debates and discussions about the fast-changing world of energy. We'll catch you soon.